Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have provided for us everything, Lord, pertaining to life and godliness, and it all began in your heart before time itself began. And now we here, Lord, born at this particular moment and living during this era of your sovereign move in history, our witnessing Father, the most amazing and glorious display of your redemption power, Father, that we could ever personally know for every one of us who confesses Jesus Christ our Lord. You have done a miracle. You have raised us from the dead. By the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, you have transformed ourselves. Our minds are now being transformed and renewed by the power of your word, even as the power of the Spirit rejuvenated our inner man, resurrected us from the death of sin, and set us on a course of bringing glory to you, rather than rebelling against you and being at enmity with your glory and lordship. We just celebrate these truths today, and I pray now that you would quicken in us, in our mind, in our heart, our soul, a renewed and a deeper appetite to understand our great salvation, that as these scriptures are read, that they would be communicated not just, Lord, on one level, communication to the mind, but even deeper into the soul, into the heart, and the fabric of our being, that they might produce in us fruit that would glorify you that we might repent of sin, walk more fully in your presence, Lord. Be better testimonies and witnesses of your truth and your gospel, that we might be better equipped as able ambassadors of the new covenant, that we could, Lord, become closer to the standard of the measure, the fullness of the glory of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our example. I thank you for this time that you've prepared for us to study your holy word. I pray that you would remind us again what a treasure it is, so that we don't soon forget these beautiful precepts hidden within its pages. I pray that your glory would be advanced here, Father, as your Holy Spirit takes over this service for your glory and name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise God for the opportunity to be brought here safely by His Holy Spirit guarded on the roads and guided by Him to join together again in fellowship, worship before His throne and opening up His Scriptures. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 11. As you're turning there, I'm just going to read for you once again these four verses from Matthew 12. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. That final phrase is the phrase that we left off on last week when we were commenting on how Matthew demonstrates that these words of Isaiah that were declared centuries previously were fulfilled in the coming work and in the ministry of Jesus Christ our Lord that happened in Palestine during the time 
when Matthew walked the earth, and also the other disciples who followed him and recorded the great events for our benefit, and every other believer who has treasured this book that lies before you today. But as we think about how this was fulfilled, how these things were fulfilled as we pondered last week, I thought this week to expand on an additional thought related to the fact that the Gentiles have come in. That thought is this, where else does the Bible tell us more about the fact and our personal connection to the reality of the Gentiles being included in the covenant community of Jesus Christ? And that answer comes very clearly in Romans 11. And what Romans, the question Romans 11 answers for us is, how does greater Scripture direct us to appreciate the sovereign inclusion of the Gentiles into the redemptive plan of God? When you read in Matthew 12, twice in four verses, that Jesus Christ will come, that God's Spirit will verify who He is. He is the one with whom the soul of the Heavenly Father is well pleased, and upon whom the Spirit of Almighty God rests. And when you read that He will, by the word of His power, proclaim justice to the Gentiles, and then you see that the phrase, the reference to the Gentiles, picked up again in verse 21 of Matthew 12, and in His name, then Gentiles will hope. How should that make us feel? feel? For all of you non-Jews in the room today, virtually all, all of us I assume, how ought the truth, the prophecy that Isaiah gave that the Gentiles would be included in the covenant community, the fellowshipping community of those who found favor by grace alone in the sight and in the fellowship of Father God, how should that make us feel? How does greater scripture direct us to appreciate and to offer to the Lord an attitude, heart, words, songs, conversations, meditations of overflowing worship in light of this amazing, sovereign, great salvation that was not obligated, that was God was not obligated to deliver to us other than what he had prepared by the pleasure of his will alone against all ethnic odds among those who, ethnically speaking, had no relationship in our heritage to what the Jews were privy to know. We were totally aliens, foreigners outside of the house of God, not having the opportunity to witness, to behold the benefit of the feasts and the record, other than what we read in Scripture secondhand, but certainly not in our own family lineage and, lineage and experience, the record of God's grace through the great patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's children, the twelve tribes of Israel, and so on. But we know all of that is extremely important to God. The greater portion of His Word is dedicated to His covenantal involvement with an ethnic people, the entire Old Testament. And there we have types, figures, prefiguring, revelation, and declaration of who God is. But then we have another truth revealed and a prophecy fulfilled. Against all odds, peoples who didn't experience that in their own ethnic or filial heritage are grafted in. 
grafted in. That is grace. That is grace in a dimension that the Word of God commands us to consider in its cultural context. This is a grace that has been extended to us that ought to open up the manifold understanding of the grace of God to that many greater dimensions in our worship, in our understanding, and in our affections. I think that's what Romans chapter 11 is calling the attention of the Gentiles to. Though you have experienced suddenly a dawning of revelation on your souls that you didn't think about and generationally ponder and angst over and anguish for a Messiah coming, but all of a sudden there's a missionary knocking at your door in Ephesus, at your door in Corinth and Rome and so on, even though don't take this sudden dawning of revelation, glorious salvation for granted. It was not based on your merit. And there was no obligation other than God's holy will to include you. And if it had not been for His sovereign grace alone, you would remain alien to the house and the fellowship of God. But because He moved heaven and earth and fulfilled His prophecy of old, we have the privilege of being included in that number, grafted in sons and daughters of Abraham. Consider with me from Romans 11, the title of this message, Kindness and Severity. When we are thinking thoughts that the Scripture would guide us towards in proportion and relationship to our great salvation as Gentiles, the Word of God begs us to consider both the kindness and the severity of God. Romans 11.22 Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Now this admonition to humbly, worshipfully maintain biblical affections for the fact that Gentiles have been grafted in is one that's attended also with a warning. If we are, as Gentile peoples, to lose the awesome reality, even as Paul says in verse 20, do not become proud, but stand in awe. If we are to lose our sense of awe as to the glory of our salvation, by the sovereign grace of God, that a Gentile could be grafted into his covenant community, if we lose that, we are running a very dangerous course, a course that might cause us to be cut off, cut off from that grafting itself. I think this admonition is serious. And I'm troubled as I consider the state of the modern church and even the lackadaisical attitude of my own soul related to these truths. It makes me ask this question. Is the modern church these days measuring up to this standard that Paul was careful to, deli to deliver 2,000 some years ago or less? Are we dangerously close to becoming cut off as Gentile peoples? Having only considered maybe the grace or the kindness of God, 
and not his severity? You see, today, sermons are preached all over this great prosperous land. And if you were to take a poll as to their theme, I wonder how disproportionate the themes of kindness of God to severity of God would be from the pulpits in this land. I've been, try, I've been trying to, in my responsibility before you, be careful to note in Scripture how God's steadfast love and His judgment go are concurrent ideas, and if we lose one or the other, we lose the gospel. And so it is here that if we are to consider our great salvation, the fact that we were grafted in, if we consider only the kindness of God and not His severity... We run the great risk of losing our love and maybe even our affection and culturally speaking, our grasp on the gospel. A dangerous place to be is to ponder our religious affections in such a way as to exclude all concepts of God's severity and His judgment. That's just one example that comes to my mind that makes me wonder if we run very close, if not in some sectors already guilty, and reaping the judgment of being cut off from our grafting in as Gentile people groups to the covenant community of God. Paul is clear. Paul is clear. We cannot appreciate the fulfillment of redemptive prophecy without a biblical perspective on its personal cultural, and historical ramifications. Romans 11.22 exhorts us to behold the kindness and severity of God in the context of the gracious salvation of the Gentiles as an alien and distinct people, group, and culture whose distinctive features rendered it an amazing miracle that we are grafted in. In light of this admonition from the Apostle, how do we measure up? Does it cross our mind that often? A heading for the main body of this message, I'll give it to you here. This would appear at the top of your notes with three points underneath. The heading is this. Note the fulfillment of Gentile-related prophecy from three biblical vantage points. To settle our own mind and heart, that we are not falling dangerously close to the guilty indictment that Paul delivers to those who are just proud and take for granted their salvation and do not stand in awe, if we're interested in not being found cut off from Him, perhaps today's message will help in that regard by drawing our attention to three biblical vantage points to appreciate the fulfillment of of Gentile-related prophecy. Again, in Matthew 12, these were stunning and awe-filled words that ought to have brought a gasp and glory and fear to the heart of those who heard. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to glory, to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. And while we are walking in the Spirit, if we hear those words, we ought to have a shudder in our spine. 
There ought to be thoughts connected to that idea that draw us into a holy reverential state where perhaps our eyes turn heavenward for just a moment and at least our heart bows itself before His glory just to pause for a moment and to consider the weight of that statement that Gentiles were grafted in. Do not become proud, but stand in awe. Verse 19 again in Romans 11, Then you will say, Branches were broken off, so that I might be grafted in. That is true. But they were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand through faith. But do not become proud, but stand in awe. You stand in faith, and you ought to stand in awe. Two ways to stand as an unlikely convert to Jesus Christ. Stand in faith and stand in awe. A great vision for worship. A great vision for meditations in your own mind. Things to think about, write about, pray about, worship God for. Do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Let's consider these words, the fulfillment of Gentile-related prophecy from three biblical vantage points. First of all, the personal ramifications or the personal implications of being a Gentile who has been saved. Turn with me, or keep, uh, keep your finger there in Romans, and let's continue to read this passage in its context starting in verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Again, that's in the next few verses we read that the branches were broken off that we might be grafted in, but we ought to stand in awe. But read, pick up again here in verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own conceits. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. So if we connect those two thoughts, we see Paul's alluding here again to the pride or the familiarity or the taking for granted or the cavalier attitude that a Gentile might be guilty of. And if they were a potentially guilty of this, if, if they could run into if the Roman Christians... And the first wave of Christianity, through the familiarity of their surroundings within the community of Jesus Christ, could be guilty of falling into this error. How much more we, so many more years removed, how much closer must we pay attention to these words here? Because we're not surrounded with the same historical context. We don't step out onto the street into a Roman civilization to remember with fresh awareness of yesterday's or a few years ago headlines that a Messiah came, an unlikely commoner, and was crucified for our transgressions. We don't have that reality, that reminder in as many ways as they would have had then in their experience as well as the Word of God. And that ought to drive us to the Word of God to find our security and hope to fill in the gaps where our experience would leave us short. And the Word of God is sufficient in that regard, but here's where we need to turn, places like this, Romans eleven twenty five. lest you be wise in your own conceits. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. 
And in this way, all Israel will be saved. The scriptures go on to tell us about the sovereignty of God in election. For our sake, God has issued, decreed a partial hardening over the Jews. When we're left staggered at the weight of this revelation, we're told in verse 32, God consigned, for instance, all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. How are we to take such a weighty, heavy truth? Verse 33, this is how Paul expressed his own worship and fear to the Lord. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments, how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Have you been entertaining thoughts, believer, in your prayer time, your devotions, your time of worship here lately? Have you been entertaining thoughts of the sovereign work of God in your salvation that cause you to spontaneously erupt in praise with phrases like this? Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God to overflow with the spontaneous burst of praise at the sovereign glory of God. I cannot understand the depth of the riches of God. How inscrutable are your judgments. How inscrutable are your ways. But one thing I know from Him, from you, through you, and to you are all things. Only let my life bring glory to you forever. As you have designed me and my salvation for. These are the personal prayer implications. His personal implications of taking seriously Paul's admonitions are to find ways in our worship expressions and prayer and praise and meditation to not become proud but to fear, to stand in awe at His holiness. When was the last time we were blown away by the awe-inspiring reality of our own grafting in this Saints, members of the household of God, is indeed fuel for worship. It's a well, an endless one, an infinite well from which to draw motive force to worship God from the depths of your lungs. With your eyes turned towards glory, with single-mindedness at the glory and beauty of His Word. Prayer implications come to mind. Our personal attitude and heart direction and orientation to the Lord to indulge and to cultivate thoughts of awe, reverence and fear and to not become proud and dismissive and just cavalier in our attitude about the amazing things that God has done. Secondly, under personal implications, consider the weight of these truths for your family worship time. I did that for the first time in a long time this week when we gathered together one of these evening uh, weekday evenings for family worship, and I ri- reminded my boys and my girl how glorious our situation is in Christ. I told them what Gentiles were, and I told them that we are Gentiles. I tried to erase all the years of time that sometimes cloud our understanding and vision of the differences culturally between the unlikely sons of Abraham and those who had that ethnic heritage. And I told them, this is amazing. 
we wouldn't be here and we shouldn't be here if it wasn't a sovereign work of the Lord. There's no way my family would gather every night, open the scriptures and worship if God had not seen fit to graft the Gentiles in. We would have no frame of reference, no cultural framework, no familiarity, no word of God, no preaching to us, no Holy Spirit reaching into the depths of our soul, piquing our interest, quickening our understanding, and giving us the word of God, not just in written form, but on the tables of our hearts. And this was a thought for us to ponder in our family worship this week. Consider how God moved and chose to do so sovereignly through redemptive history. He started with one family, one family. The Tower of Babel begins to crumble, at least starting at this particular point in history. It was one of those times of whole-scale cultural demise. Man had reaped the judgment of their own sin. They had collectively unified their efforts in enmity against the God, the King of Heaven. God graciously reached down in this situation. He didn't send another flood. He had already promised He wouldn't. Though every man would have justly been drowned in that deluge had it come again, or justly been burned in the flames of fire forever if He had sought to, if He had seen fit to rain, rain down sulfur fire from heaven as He does at times in places of His choosing, consider Sodom and Gomorrah. But God, but God in His grace, revealed himself to one family. He chose an unlikely guy with a woman, a wife who was infertile, and he said, I, you will become a great nation. I'm going to reveal myself to you. And God cut a covenant with Abraham. And at this point in time, in his grace, he chose to reveal himself to one family. But there was a promise embedded in that revelation. Through that one family, all of the earth would be blessed. No one knew, could have known at that time, how long it would take for the fulfillment of that promise to take shape in time. God knew. That family went on to be a blessing. It was full of sinners, yes, but by God's sovereign power preserved the heritage and the bloodline of the Messiah. Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob. And we think of those stories in our mind as we read. And think of the family implications for your own home now, the way I did. I told my kids that we are adopted sons and daughters of Abraham, and spiritually so. We have no business being in that family by natural heritage. It was only God's grace, His glorious grace. It wasn't by divine right of kings. It wasn't by privileged birth. It wasn't by anything like that at all. It was by the sovereign pleasure of God. And this is a weighty thought as we consider it. It reminds us again of more dimensions of grace. The fact that we so culturally removed <clears throat> from the revelation of God would be grafted in is a stunning miracle. It's stunning. It ought to fill our hearts with fear. It ought to make us humble. To crucify and push out pride. It ought to draw our attention and worship and admonition to those under us of the salvation that has visited this unlikely household of faith. Those made up of the outcast and those who are not under the covenant and didn't have the benefit of the Old Testament revelation of the feasts and those symbols which were very valuable. Paul says in the same book, 
What advantage then is there of a Jew? Hypothetically answering or rhetorically answering the question, what, you know, if salvation is by grace alone, what advantage does the Jew have? What then advantage does the Jew, uh, Romans 3.1, or what values of circum- is the value of circumcision? Paul says much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does this unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written. Now consider this heavy thought. For those who had advantages in every conceivable way, inasmuch, for example, as to them were committed and trusted the word and the oracles of God, and they missed it, but we... Gentiles who did not have that advantage, we got it? That amplifies to us the personal effects that we have experienced of the sovereign work of God in being answers to His prophecy that Gentiles would be grafted in. This is an amazing thought indeed. Finally, consider under the personal implications, the assembly implications What we're doing here today is gathering with a handful of believers to consider thoughts like these, holy inspirational thoughts from Scripture that bind together the unity between believers because of something that we've experienced that is not defined by ourselves, but so supersedes who we are as humans that it creates a whole new plane of fellowship impossible under any other circumstances. We have a tight though small body of believers here, only because we are united in Christ. We take communion monthly in this church. Oftentimes I wish it were more often because it's a tangible reality of what actually binds us. And to have the privilege of meaningfully taking part in the table of the Lord and His sacraments That which represents his shed blood and broken body is something that is not granted to everyone. Sure, anybody can pick up bread and eat it. Anybody can drink juice. But not anybody can say that Jesus Christ is their Lord, their Savior, and their Messiah. Especially if they're caught in the death of sin and find themselves in enmity with God and need an absolute change of heart, if they need to be born again before they meaningfully partake, then that which binds us together is the sovereignty of God to resurrect a dead sinner to the life, to life in Jesus Christ. And there are these little outposts all over this land of believers who assemble under those conditions. This is something new historically. It didn't happen prior to the Christians going out and planting churches. A new thing, unprecedented, fulfillment of prophecy. There might have been a synagogue in your area, but you talk about ethnic exclusivity. You couldn't just walk through the door or participate. There were those who became Jews by conversion in the Old Testament, but they were a very narrow number. In fact, by God's sovereign design, He decreed that this people would be small by definition so that His glory through a small and weak people might be made known 
And at one time of his point in choosing, he would spread his news all over the world and many tribes or many people from all tribes and tongues and nations at such time would be grafted in. Why were we born during that time? I cannot answer that question. That falls into the category of the depths and riches and wisdom and inscrutable knowledge of God that we read of in Romans 11. But I know how to feel. I know how to worship. I know how to react to that truth. It's written right alongside. I ought to say, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. We as Gentiles grafted in have no excuse for a single bad day after we come to Christ. We have no excuse. Now, I, I suspect I have as many bad days as the next guy. That just means I stand in need of repentance. If I should ever lose the joy of my great salvation that God has sovereignly provided, think of the Reformation era. Even after the Holy Scriptures were given and Christ's word was going forth, and he was through his apostles and disciples proclaiming justice to the Gentiles. Think of times of darkness, relatively speaking, even since then. We could have been born as an average person was some 500 years ago without the ability to even read the Word of God. But now are we in danger of becoming proud and hard-hearted because of the proliferation of opportunity? All the Bibles everywhere? Christian radio all the time. I can download these. Sometimes I listen to maybe 20 hours of proposition on my phone. Preachers faithful to the word speaking into my ear the truth of the knowledge of Christ. I had better consider what a gift that is. I ought not grow proud in my own heart thinking I deserve it. I ought not take it for granted. Just the technology that God's sovereignty has provided for us to read and reproduce His Word is a stunning reality that ought to increase our worship to Him. Now, in light of this first point of perspective, the personal implications of considering the fulfillment of Gentile-related prophecy from a biblical standpoint and vantage point, you can see where it seems when Paul says that if we forget our salvation and the implications of it, we are guilty of being cut off, it really makes you wonder if we live in a bad way right now. Because I honestly can say that my love of the Lord, affections for Him, commitment to His service, has not always increased proportionally to the availability of revelation and His Word at my fingertips right there. My, my eardrums, and right there and talking freely without the threat of physical persecution to you, my neighbor, the, another congregant in the church of Jesus Christ. Do I worship God for all these blessings, these manifold graces that are over and above just the sheer blessing of knowing Him and having salvation in the first place? Do I stand in awe? at this reality, or have I become proud and hard-hearted? A question every individual needs to ask. And I would venture to say, culturally speaking, not only are we guilty of being cut off, 
generally in the West, Western forms of Christianity, as the numbers bear them out, but we in some sectors have been cut off. I believe this to be true. There is a statistical apostasy that would make the core of, of our, uh, of our uh, mind just in, in thoughts shudder with it because so many have left the faith and so many children are losing the faith of their parents and so many churches are embracing whole-scale rebellion into their policies, practices, and the things that they endorse and proclaim, losing the gospel entirely. Paul's words stand true. And if we don't stand with Paul, where do we stand? We prove his words true by being cut off. I am telling you, the repentance that our situation warrants is dramatic and drastic. It ought to drive us to our knees. Quite frankly, it ought to populate morning prayer at 9 o'clock here on Sunday mornings. It ought to drive me to my prayer closet. More times of anguish before the Lord. More fasting and prayer. But in this land of great prosperity, with fast food joints on every corner, and this me-centered, self-indulgent lifestyle, we just get fat. We don't fast. In, number of, in, in that, so metaphorically speaking, not just in food, but in everything that our mind takes in and our soul chooses to feed on, we really need to repent. And pray that repentance comes as a sweeping movement of God across this whole land, so that, as one pastor put it, there might be a run on sackcloth and ashes at our local hardware stores again. Number two, let's consider biblically, from a biblical vantage point, Gentile-related prophecy and its fulfillment in light of its philosophical implications. The severity toward those who have fallen philosophy just means the study of the nature of reality. And what is the nature of reality for Paul that undergirds a statement like this? Note, Romans eleven twenty two. then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. There is a severity in God meaning a reality of His reserving for Himself the prerogative to judge people groups for apostasy that He retains in the New Covenant. And it ought to fill our minds with fear. We consider freely, and we love it, the kindness of God, but do we consider His severity? Severity towards those who have fallen. Two additional reference points for you to perhaps study at a later date. Maybe I will turn there just so I don't paraphrase and miss the context. There are two points in Old Covenant history that strike me on first glance as paradoxical, paradoxical I'm sorry, paradoxical. That's hard to say. But on second glance, as demonstrating a biblical truth that is easily missed on modern evangelicalism. At the end of the book of Judges, the very last verse, in fact, we find the social state of the people 
we find a whole people group similar to the Jews at the time of Jesus' arrival who, in the severity of God, were deserving of His judgment. And if they wouldn't continue with Him, they would be in the same dangerous place of being cut off. And we read of this circumstance in Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. When, they, when that phrase, when you hear that phrase, there was no king in Israel, you could perhaps equate it to meaning there was no central ruling authority and binding element among the people. There was no temple that held their affections and attention that signified God's presence among them. They had long forgotten the significance of the Ark of the Covenant. You know, within the Ark of the Covenant were the ten dictates from a holy God that they didn't fear anymore. And there was no king among them, meaning there was no authoritative proclamation of law that bound the people in unity to the glory of God and to the preservation of their social order, their society, and their well-being. If you read the circumstances previous, I mean, it's just right on the heels of the story, a bunch of people worried that the uh, men of Benjamin didn't have wives. They came up with the perfect solution. Go kill some people and take their wives and just go steal other wives until you get enough women by kidnapping, theft, and, are, and are probably adultery in some cases to repopulate this uh, languishing population in the tribe of Benjamin. That was listed as an example of this truth, this principle, that was really the order of their day. There was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in its own eyes. Now, as I say, seemingly paradoxical, the situation continued under these conditions, this relative decay among the people, so as the whole people group was becoming more and more corrupt. This was the situation, and it produced many social ills, and as they were reaping the judgment of their sin and their error, again, nationally speaking, as a people, there came a day when they did cry out for a king. That happened in 1 Samuel 8. Samuel became old. He made his sons judges over Israel. And the name of his firstborn son was Joel. The name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways. Notice what they did. They turned aside after gain. They took bribes, perverted justice. Again, the word of God were lying there as casualties in the street. The drive-by shooting of man's wanton affections. And so what was to happen during this time? Well, the people recognized, hey, we're in total chaos here. But they did like the tribe of Benjamin did. They try, tried to solve their problem through human means. Hey, we've got a great idea. Let's anoint the king. Let's have one like the other people have. But they chose a king after their own image instead of a king that would be chosen to reflect and to promote God's holy law. And Samuel told them what they were asking for. He said... All the words of the Lord to the people who are asking for a king from him, he said. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. This is reading in verse 10. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to his horsemen and to run his before his chariots. He will appoint for him commanders and thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow the ground, some to reap his harvest. 
He will take the best of your fields and vineyards, all of orchards, and give them excuse me, to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain in your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and best of your young men and your donkeys. He will put them to his work. Take a tenth of your flocks. You shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. You see, in the one hand, the people were tending to total anarchy and individualism. And there was no king. And everyone did what was right in his own, in his own eyes. And things became so chaotic and disorderly, then they cried out for a king. Well, what did they ask for? Not one who organized his rule under God's law. They asked for one like the neighboring countries. So what was the consequence? Slavery. Families were broken apart. Their wealth was dispersed. And again, they came under a different form of judgment. Now, I share that to illustrate this philosophical point. There's a question of tension in philosophy as old as man has began thinking that tries to reconcile two realities in relationships between people. It's the question of the one and the many. Is the individual important or is the collective important? And in the one hand, you see man in his sin nature waffling between poles. Man sometimes says, oh, just I'm going to do what I want. The individual is important. And he ends up living in barbaric individualism. And then on the other side of the pole, man decides this isn't working. I'm going to create a human construct for my salvation. The other end of the pole is Babel building statism. Barbaric individualism and Babel building statism. You cannot understand or appreciate, I'm going to make this connection to Paul's words, the fulfillment of the Gentiles being grafted in without a biblical understanding of the age-old question of the one and the many. This is a question that deals with the power and meaning of relationships across society. Our sinful tendency, as I mentioned, is to self-define our identity and meaning by vacillating between two poles, ranging from a barbaric individualism to a statism. That's just the equivalent to building another Tower of Babel. And how we conceive of the relationship of the individual to the whole group has an immediate effect on all our social constructs. Pardon me if this is sounding academic, but I hope you'll see the connection in due course. Consider the government of America, for instance. We used to be much more decentralized than we are now. Where does good ideas about good government come from? They come from God's Word. A king, as it's later described in the books of the law, was permissible. He was just not supposed to act in a certain way. The king was not supposed to put his faith in chariots, wealth, and dubious relationships, economic and otherwise, with multiple wives. Instead, the government was to fear the Lord, just as we are to fear the Lord, being governed by Him and giving our heart to Him, in salvation. So even civil government has real consequences in how we construct our government according to how we view the relationship between people. So government tends to decay 
into barbaric individualism, or it centralizes into a tyranny. In the Word of God, the individual and the group both have real meaning. It's a mutually beneficial relationship. Think about how God defines just and a prosperous and blessed society. Think about the body of Christ. Constituent parts whose complementary graces work together for the benefit of the whole. One of you is a hand, one of you is a foot, one of you is a head, and so on. And when they're under Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is our head actually, when they're under Jesus Christ, all parts benefit the whole. So together we have meaning, and individually we have meaning if we are under Christ. There is a mutually beneficial relationship, a symbiotic, if you will, relationship. One does not profit at the expense of another. That is to say that the individual isn't lost at the expense of the state or the whole, the collective. And the collective, the government or the authority, isn't lost for the sake of the individual. Now, with that construct in mind, think again as to our salvation. Are we guilty in the American West of a spiritual barbarism? A spiritual barbarism. An unqualified individuality that cares only about my relationship with God and misses the cultural sovereign ramifications of our salvation. We belong culturally to a people group who do not deserve culturally. We are outside outcasts but have been grafted in. And we are not to forget that point. Only the proud and only the one who does not fear considers only the effects of our individualism before the Lord. No, the whole has meaning as well. To live in light of God's sovereignty to live in light of his providence is to renounce the notion of this idea that our salvation only has personal implications for us. The Bible says to us, do not forsake the assembly of ourselves together. Why? Because it's selfish to deny a hand the use of its arm and to deny the arm the use of the torso and so on. And God is glorified when the constituent parts work together under Him to display His glory over the earth. And if we are guilty of a barbaric individualism, where we think of only the way we feel, the things we like, things we appreciate in our personal relationship with, with the Lord, we might be guilty of taking for granted the fact that there are cultural ramifications to our great salvation. This radical individualism related to our spiritual nature, to our spiritual life, I should say, has sometimes been referred to as pietism. Pietism holds that there really is no authoritative cultural role for New Covenant Christianity in the world. Only considerations of the individual's relationship to God, and it stops there. Or nearly an exclusive emphasis on those things. Are we, this is the question, in danger of being cut off? because of our arrogant, individualistic entitlement mentality, a sort of spiritual barbarism, a me-centeredness, a man-glorifyingness, a spoiled, rotten, non-fear of the Lord. 
God orders his decrees and will in terms of the individual and the corporate. That is, the Christian has a responsibility to be salt and light and to consider obediently and fearfully the effects of his claims on those around him for the benefit of the body of Christ and the benefit of greater society. If those are totally lost on him, he has lost the truth that God orders his decrees and will in a context in terms of the individual and the corporate. Notice how much work Paul spent to make sure that dysfunctional churches would operate on all cylinders again. He knew the future of Christendom, as it were, depended on it. He knew that the church would not survive if all it did was cater to the individual's market desire for a particular product. He knew that he had to preach a gospel that reminded everybody that they did not deserve salvation so that they would sacrificially lay down their life for the benefit of God's greater work. And it wasn't all about them. He knew that he needed to draw their attention to the cultural conditions of their own experience in salvation, being a Gentile, so that they did not become proud and arrogant and then cease to be able to take up their cross, lay down their life, and follow God to the ends of the earth, even if it meant leaving a cushy, self-centered environment at home behind. See, these are the things I'm afraid that were lost in the shuffle of the reordering of our spiritual understanding these days. Now listen, a Jew could conceivably come to Christ during the sovereign hardening, but it would be extraordinarily rare. You might ask the question, does this mean that no Jews came to Christ or come to Christ since the doors were open to the Gentiles? I don't believe that to be the case, but... There was a sovereign hardening so that the Gentiles would come in and it was extra- It has been arguably up to this point and perhaps that's changing by the grace of God. I pray it's true. It has been extraordinarily rare for a Jew to come to Christ. Listen, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, but as regards election, they are the beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. This is how fearful we should consider the gift of salvation. God committed in his sovereignty some group, namely the Jews, to a period of disobedience and hardening to purchase I don't know why he did it. It's in his inscrutable wisdom, but I know he did from Romans 11. Your salvation. That is a salvation when we consider its terms, we hold with fear and trembling. We don't take lightly. And if God has a requirement for us that we take into account the cultural ramifications and our duty before him, and that is lost on us, we are guilty of falling into some of these traps. If we disregard the demands of Christianity on culture, on government of greater society, our apostasy among the Gentiles and our Christian uh, West will increase, and conversely now, Gentile converts will grow proportionally, proportionally rare. And I would venture the claim that we are partially at this time in history cut off. Consider one more implication of the severity toward those who have fallen. That phrase, considering both God's kindness and His severity, 
and the implications of our great salvation. Consider it for missions. Now, I think a message to the American church that would be well-heeded would be this. Stop sending missionaries until you repent of spiritual barbarism. Stop sending missionaries until you repent of the me-centeredness of your gospel. Stop sending missionaries to proliferate basically humanism all over the globe until you consider once again with fear, with fear and trembling, your salvation in light of the unlikelihood that it visited you and your duty and obligation to the body of Christ and greater culture as a whole in light of the truth claims and authority claims of Jesus Christ, your Lord. I'm hearing reports over and over again from missionaries that are grounded in the scriptures coming back or maybe those visiting other countries that are reporting back a litmus test on the diluted poison of modernity that is corrupting nations in some cases it's seemingly whole continents. We have Christian so-called missionaries that are going into the heart of Africa and exporting some kind of neo-Christian feminism and proposing to liberate the women there from the abusive conditions by saying, you are a woman, go ahead and roar in a Christian way, run away from your family. What should they be doing? Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and calling the men of that culture to repentance. Bow the knee. You're responsible not only for your own heart and apostasy, but for the spiritual condition of all your illegitimate children. Call them to repentance. If they kill you, that's fine. It's in God's sovereign hands. He'll use the blood of the martyrs as he has for the seed of his church. You go there and you preach the gospel in the way that it was directed. How do I know that this is biblical? Read the book of Ephesians. It opens with the glorious revelation of, yes, our personal relationship with Jesus Christ and the predestinated sovereignty of the same. And then it immediately moves to the manner in which we ought to walk. And what does Paul delineate? He delineates our responsibility to the many. He says, you're not just a rogue individual, me and my Lord alone doing my thing. He says that you have a responsibility to your husband, to your wife, parents to children, children to parents, children to children, slave to master, master to slave, person to society, society to government. And after he delineates all those relationships within the culture of Christianity, what does he say? Put on the full armor of God, helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, belt of truth, shield of faith, feet shod with this gospel of peace, and you will be the church militant and principalities and powers will not be able to stand against it. Why are missionary efforts been so futile? Why have we not seen, why have we seen a decline in apostasy in the West? Why have the Christian outposts been growing anemic and weak all over the place, except, mind you, in the countries where they're perhaps repressed the most by statist governments? It's because we've been proud. We've been lazy. We've been negligent. And we've not considered the implications in the application of our salvation. We've considered God's kindness, perhaps, but not His severity. And this is how we are called to change. You know, in this last, it's not just this last, you know, lifespan that you and I have lived or a little longer. It's over, it's, it's probably more than almost two centuries with this kind of corrupted thinking of over-individualizing someone's relationship with God and not considering its cultural ramifications has been exported over the globe. Do you know that Japan is less than 1% Christian? Even after a multi-generational concentrated effort to reach that relatively open nation with the gospel, why is that the case? 
Well, it's the case because Christians would put their kids in boarding schools and go there and preach an individualism that was not up to competing to the task with the filial circumstances in that land. That is to say that they worship ancestors culturally there, and that's a stronger, more effective binding element in their society. You've got to bring your whole family. If you leave your family at home or refuse to have kids when God has called you to do so, and don't take that little microcosm of the body of Christ fully functioning according to the book of Ephesians, and then let, let that be something of a mission for vision and vision for missions, what are you doing? You're cutting off your feet so you can run faster. You're cutting off your feet so you can run faster. And I fear we find ourselves in this place today as a nation. There are certainly, and I would beg you not to use my own opinions and proposition as the judge, but only insofar as I have accurately shared the Word of God with you, there are many things to consider in the wake of this admonition of standing in awe, not becoming proud, that we would consider the kindness and severity of God, I think, many, many areas and much, much room for repentance. There's one final point to consider here in this message. I'll just touch on this very briefly and maybe pick it up in a later week. When we consider the kindness and severity of our God, when we note the fulfillment of Gentile-related prophecy from three biblical vantage points, we've covered the personal, we've covered maybe a philosophical point, considering how God works in terms of whole peoples as well as individuals. It's a both-and situation. The final point we can consider is the historical perspective that the Bible provides. We touched on this briefly already in reminding ourselves of the story of the family of Abraham. But consider the depth of the riches, wisdom, and knowledge of God related to the arc of redemptive history. The Gentile in the Old Testament was the prototypical, he was the archetypical outcast from God's favor. Two cities come to mind in the Gospels that you may recognize their name because they've been in our Matthew, uh, their Matthew text, Matthew 11, verses 20 through 24, Tyre and Sidon. The examples of Tyre and Sidon as two typical cities deserving of judgment appear over and over and over again. Isaiah in the Old Testament, Isaiah 23, 1, Jeremiah 25, 22, Ezekiel chapter 26 and 28, Amos 1, Zechariah 9, and just to name a few. But something changes when this prophecy is revealed. Cities and towns that deserved God's long-standing judgment, that worshipped false gods, in the case of Tyre and Sidon, by the way, they worshipped this God that they believed to be the God of healing. Can't remember its name, but it doesn't matter anyways. They worshipped this false God that they believed was responsible for healing. There were towns just north of Israel, on the outskirts, and they were Gentile. Well, when Jesus Christ came, he said that his mission was primarily to the Jews. But in Mark chapter 3, verse 8, we find mixed in with that number of his hearers, some from Tyre and Sidon. We also find mixed in other evidences of Gentiles that were following him around. Matthew chapter 4 records those from the Galilee Gentile regions where there's more mixed people groups of Zebulun and Naphtali. Jesus Christ himself visited Tyre and Sidon, and Mark records that occasion in chapter 7, verses 24 through 31. 
You might remember the Syrophoenician woman, and Jesus seemed to have harsh words for her. And she asked if he could heal her daughter, I believe. And he said, what, and uh, do we feed dogs at the table, paraphrasing? And she said, well, even dogs eat from the crumbs of the table. Why was Jesus' language so harsh? Well, I think in part to sovereignly demonstrate how unlikely this miracle and this woman's salvation and the salvation of every Gentile, including you and me, would be. We are dogs. We don't deserve salvation. We are outcasts. We are not just those who are, you know, weird and different and eccentric. We are vile, reprobate, and justly under the judgment of God people, this is before we met Christ, who do not deserve the visitation of the Messiah. The Messiah came. Think of the historical ramifications of considering the fulfillment of the Gentile-related prophecy. Now suddenly, Tyre and Sidon, who are always a metaphor for judgment, are visited by Jesus Christ. Now that is a picture of you and me. You and me, before Jesus Christ, could have just as easily been substituted as a metaphor for judgment. But we have been visited by Jesus Christ. Entering into our heart, awakening our soul to salvation, and now a church has been planted in unlikely corners of the earth. Consider the conversion of this woman, presumably the Syrophoenician woman who was healed. Jesus said that her faith was demonstrated in that act. And it was something that he commissioned his author, this gospel, Mark, to record. But later, a church was planted there. History, church history, concurrently records that this church was planted shortly after the stoning of Stephen, after his death. But we do have in Acts 21, verse 4, the record of Paul's visitation there. Paul said, or Paul visited there in the the Spirit was alive there in these believers. They actually prophesied then to Paul. And it's an amazing to think that, it, that two cities that appeared in prophecy for hundreds of years, as those deserving of judgment, suddenly had an outpost of gospel truth, and they themselves began to prophesy by the power of God. And now we see the historical in this historical account, within even the pages of Scripture, the depth, the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. And I'm telling you, our heritage is similar. Our heritage goes back from before we could even imagine that all the situations and circumstances that God has sovereignly ordered to bring salvation to our door. It's not just because you decided and had it. I had to change your heart. I thought I'd give Jesus a try. You know, and sure enough, I tried him. It's pretty, pretty good. I think I'm going to stick with him. That is not a biblical accounting of the experience of your salvation. A biblical accounting of your experience would be one that would be attended with fear and humility. And if we should ever take it lightly, like, of course, I should receive salvation. After all, a Christian parents or any number of things that might make the familiarity of our circumstances breed contempt. Let us fear and humbly repent of any such notion. Because we do not want to ignore the severity of God. A final verse I'll read to you in closing, Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12. If you wonder about a picture, and even in your mind's eye, ear, you might hear the sound of what worship is like when you consider and apply what Paul says in Romans 11, 
Consider the kindness and severity of the Lord and your appreciation of salvation and your worship of Him. I think Revelation 7, 9 through 12 is, has greater record as any to describe it. And here we have, hopefully I have the right reference, yes. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, if any of us listening here find room in our heart for repentance related to the joy and the overwhelming awe, fear, trembling, and also, Lord, humility, and the sense of security, and just the sigh of relief, all of these things combined, if there's any lack in our souls for the appropriate response of worship to you, for the salvation that you have delivered to us over centuries of meticulous planning, over the per perfect by the perfect execution of your will, by the sacrifice of martyrs who laid their blood down for the gospel, delivered on the backs of missionaries who bore the stripes and counted it joy to receive them, to bring the gospel to the doorstep of Tyre, Sidon, Corinth, Rome, England, America. If we find it in our heart, room for repentance, to consider the glories of our salvation, Lord Jesus, as we ought to, with joy, fear, and trembling, I pray that you would move us to do exactly that. I pray the consequences of our repentance in that regard would not merely be personal in our relationship to you, but they would also serve the greater work and kingdom of God and the gospel expansion to teach and instruct whole nations in the whole counsel of God insofar as you have called us, being obedient to what you've set in front of us to do. Lord, we have the promise from Scripture. If we repent in this way, we will not be cut off, and we will also be a benefit, an asset to your kingdom's growth. And the gates of hell, Lord, though they try, their hardest will not prevail against us. Lord, we long to be counted in that number, so let your Holy Spirit do his work on the inside of our souls so that we might be found serving you and hear those amazing words one day, not by our merit or work, but by the work of the Holy Spirit in and through us. Well done, my good and faithful servant. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.